Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Becoming Fully Human podcast. Today on the podcast, I have a repeat guest, one of my favorite people, Geraldine Mattis. Geraldine and I explore the theme of defense. And in a nutshell, defense is really just when you respond to life in a defensive way. And what's going on there is something we're going to go, you know, very into in this podcast. But just to start us off, basically something in your subconscious, in your psyche is uncomfortable with how someone shows up or what happens in your external world. And typically instead of going in and getting to know yourself in the name of wholeness, right, of reclaiming your full humanity, your totality of you, we will defend, we will protect the parts within ourselves that are scared or uncomfortable. And so this topic is so vital when it comes to radical self-responsibility and reclaiming the totality of ourself. I really appreciated Geraldine's invitation to explore this topic, and we'll get into how it came to be at the beginning of the podcast. Um, Yeah, I'll leave it at that for today for the intro. If you enjoy the podcast, I would so appreciate if you could leave the podcast a review wherever you listen to it. Um, It really helps me out and is a free way to give back. That's it for now. Have a beautiful day and enjoy the show. Hello, Camille. Good to see you. Likewise. Here we are again together. Um, It was interesting to me that before we came together that you shared with me a picture of a sea turtle sunbathing on the sand. Because, of course, the sea turtle is an image that we have shared since we first came to know each other when you were becoming a sexual reproductive health practitioner. And uh, so let's just talk a little bit about that sea turtle being uh, an image of the feminine and curiously how those images arise up into the world from out of the psyche as... um, sort of so-called synchronicities or accidents of, um, of circumstance. Uh, and so, of course, today we're going to talk about the intellectual defense. And mm-hmm. here comes the turtle, which is the symbol of the feminine. So why don't I speak a little bit to the turtle image, and then we can go right into the intellectual defense, yeah? I would, yeah, I would love that. Okay. Uh, Many years ago, I was considering whether I should solely focus my life and my practice on sexual reproductive health care, fertility awareness education, or just psychology, thinking that it had to be either or. And then I had a very powerful dream. And in the dream, I was taken deep to the very, very bottom of the ocean. And there I saw a huge sea turtle, big as several houses big, maybe a square city block big. And I was astonished. And the dream voice said to me, stand beside her. There's not enough who will stand beside her. And I'm thinking, this is very strange. And then I look. And in the sand, she's kind of swimming with her little flippers, or she's moving her little flippers, and she's kind of keeping these giant ruby red eggs underneath her body. And then I understood in the dream that those are the beauty and the blood mysteries of the feminine. Mm -hmm. And I was all by myself standing there. And then I was taken up to the surface, And I understood I had a responsibility to continue my work with women and the blood mysteries. That was like about 2002. And then there's been some evolutions of the dream, and sometimes there's more people standing beside her. And so I do consider, Camille, a lot of our work about the awakening of the feminine, not just the female body and what women or females do, but the energy of the feminine. And actually, the intellectual defense is something that works against welcoming the feminine energy. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I I love that. I'm going to surrender to the podcast in in terms of really you guiding it, right? But what I'll share before you take over, um, yeah, is that idea. I guess they they juxtapose, right? The the surrender and the defense, and the surrender being this feminine essence of trust, whereas the defense being this 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 battling forcefulness that is not surrendered so as a as something that yeah is against the feminine that's at least how i understand they they interact with one another just complete opposites really yeah in a way they're not complete opposites they're actually complementary but we we treat them as complete opposites because we're mm. afraid Mm. But there's nothing to be afraid. I'm just going to do a little adjustment here to my, I want to make sure I have my notes that I so carefully made for us both because it's a complex topic. Mm-hmm. Because we get, many people get confused around this one. So yeah. if if we think of the feminine as sort of opposite to the masculine energy, then we mm-hmm. have a problem. Because mm. we can't have one without the other. So we right. do need the intellect. But we don't need the intellect to defend against that which is non-rational. Mm. And the realm that makes a lot of, of sense, fem- actually. <laughs> and the realm of the feminine consciousness is non-rational. Which gets associated with you're not being logical, you're being hysterical, it doesn't make sense, it's not real. But the psyche is real. Mm. Yeah. I think that what comes up is just the, the river being like the masculine being the riverbed and the river flowing river being more of the feminine and that, yeah, they, they do complement one another. They just have maybe different roles in creating what a river is but it doesn't mean that they're they're not actually like fighting one another they're kind of like that yin and yang i mean very much right. so the yin and yang right yeah you can't have a river without its banks or without its water so mm-hmm. the, the rational realm the intellectual realm is that which contains the non-rational realm the flowing the ever moving mm-hmm. ever changing the shallows and the depths yeah. mm-hmm. now do you want to say a little bit about how we came to this topic do you remember mm, sure um yeah i do remember i don't actually remember the moment i remember the reason so basically you you shared with me that when we had first attempted to record the, our last podcast together on the timing um particularly around readiness and and pregnancy, um, having children, that you'd asked me a question and that my response visibly was defensive. Like I, my posture changed, maybe I, I caved in or I, and so I gave a very visceral defense posture. And it's funny because I don't remember it, which I think we could even speak to. I'm guessing that's very common, the unconscious way in which we we, we display before we maybe even enter, you know, like the rational thinking and defending with words that we show up physically in a, in a defensive posture. And so you suggested that we might lean in to the, I, the idea, the concept of defense as its own theme for a podcast. And of course, I am, yeah, excited to go there because this theme and the feminine you know, embodiment and honoring, especially in this partnership, you know, that I'm in, it's an ever evolving and softening for me. It's like really such a, a like it's, it's a glaring theme in my life, perhaps always, but more than ever, it's life is like calling me to really step into this chapter phase of my life that honors the feminine and in right. subtle ways too, you know, there's, there's so much about the feminine that you know, I understand the the bringing notes 
you know, even though you're so well versed and, and wise and, and it's just so complex and the, the concept of femininity, you know, so many of us, maybe I'll just share before, you know, we kind of dive in, we associate femininity with what is not feminine. Like we, we think it's an aesthetic or a performance, you know, like it, it, it becomes a performance, which in my experience is the exact opposite of what the feminine is. And so this reclamation more than anything, right. It's, it's not a learning so much as an unlearning because that like the essence of the feminine uncorrupted from, you know, our, our fears and conditioning and beliefs and society and all that stuff is there. So yeah, I'm excited to explore this. Hopefully not too many defenses show up, but I'm sure you'll point out if they do. Um, So just for our listeners, I'm going to kind of define what intellectual defense is, and then I'll speak Mm -hmm. a little bit to what I remember, why I thought it might be a good idea to to have this topic. Sounds good. Um, Mm -hmm. So an intellectual defense is... um, it's a term coming from psychology or psychoanalysis. And it's um, a psychodynamic mechanism by which we avoid emotion or thoughts that are typically uncomfortable or distressing. And they're associated with internal or external events in, in our interpsychic sphere. And we shift away from what we don't want to think or feel about. And we focus on facts and logics and abstract reasoning. So maybe I say something that hurts your feelings. And you might tell your partner later that uh, Geraldine said this thing and it was really not very nice. And instead of staying with the hurt feeling, you would say, yeah, but, you know, she's just that way. And, you know, that's how all psychologists are. They say things that aren't very nice or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like you would make an excuse for my behavior to shift away from the fact that I had mm-hmm. said something that was not very kind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps we might in our own life <clears throat> be afraid, let's say, that our relationship might not work out. And rather Mm -hmm. than paying attention to the feeling, to our fears, we'll start going online and looking up all the reasons relationships might not work out or all the things that we have to make a relationship to make a relationship work. So we avoid the feeling and get all involved in intellectual discourse, either with others or ourselves. Now, the intellectual defense is functional. So I don't want our listeners to think what's a bad thing. I've got to get rid of it like warts because it's, it's functional in that it keeps us from going to places that we are not yet ready to go to feel safe enough to go to. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that's helpful for Mm -hmm. our listeners. Now, what had happened is you and I had had our discussion about when when are we ready for a child in our life and pregnancy. And then we had to re-record the whole thing because it, the recording went bad because of the internet or something. And at mm-hmm. the end of our love, we had a lovely discussion and very conversational time together. And at the end of it, I had noticed that you were sort of moving a little w- away from your heart space and kind of into Mm -hmm. a very much intellectual space. And so I playfully said to you, next time we talk, let's see what your heart has to say. And that's when you made Mm -hmm. that. I don't know if I can repeat the the physical thing that you did, but you sort of became Mm -hmm. a little bit stiff and your head went a little bit off to one side and your Mm -hmm. lips went tight and you were like, maybe, and off we were going. So it was that place of disconnect between the heart and the mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, mm-hmm. and that's a common thing, very common. Yeah, I, I remember you bringing it up. And of course, I don't remember doing it. And 
it's just interesting, right? Because it it's a protection mechanism on one sense, in in one way, right? There's something that gets poked in us, in me, in most humans. I'm I'm guessing when something feels unsafe or we're not ready to lean in, and simultaneously, like the paradox is leaning in in the right context. You know, I guess with the right support and the right container is where we find liberation because we end up living our lives protecting ourselves, protecting these parts of ourselves that end up living in the shadows, right? The things that we don't know about ourselves that we we are unaware of about us. And then we will literally live an entire life unconsciously hiding away little bits and pieces and avoiding certain conversations and topics and people and whether it's physical, you know, hiding parts of our body or parts of our story of our past. And then we craft a life around these things, trying to protect these things. And I, I'm I'm guessing that yields um, quite a bit of inner conflict. Yes, it creates inner conflict. And the truth comes out in behavior, maybe through jokes, maybe by inappropriate statements when that reality gets triggered by someone else's comment. So it's never completely Mm -hmm. in the shadows. And and that's the Mm -hmm. challenge, which is why it's probably better to face it head on. And so on that note, I do want to honor your willingness to to explore this topic because it's tricky. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And also, I was thinking as we started talking, like your willingness to gently and sometimes not so gently nudge me in the direction of this work, right? Like it is a co-creation of you coming forth and providing me with the opportunity to do the work and creating an environment in which I feel safe enough to lean into these things Mm -hmm. that, you know, the psyche, even though they might not feel scary, it's just a conversation, you know, like there's a lot of rationalizing that one could make about like how this is not scary. But the reality is we, um, our triggers, our fears are very real to our our subconscious self, right? The Mm -hmm. child self inside and all of that. So yeah, thank you as well. You're welcome. And I think it's an important thing, Camille, to address that because in therapy, it's very common to come up against people's intellectual defense. But the job of the therapist is Mm -hmm. to knock on that door Mm -hmm. and to see if they're willing to open it. And sometimes they might open it a crack, you know, or maybe just a little peak hole, or they might open it really wide and then slam your foot in the door or or, or you just see that they don't come to the door. And so as a therapist, I have to back off. But I keep it in the back of my mind because knowing how the psyche works, it's going to want that door to be knocked on again. And so I have to listen mm, carefully like for when um, that person wants an invitation again to try to go to that door. And sometimes there's doors that never get opened. And, and that has to be respected mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't want us to look at the intellectual defense that is something that we have to surgically remove because it functions to keep us really from going into psychosis or really dysfunctional behaviors that might really destroy our life. You know, We might harm others or ourselves. Mm. So we have to respect the intellectual defense. But I also have a personal reason why I want to go into this. As you know, social media is very, very big, all sorts of information. And there's tons and tons of courses where people can learn about their inner child, learn about their, you know, how their hangnail is the cause of all their problems and all these sort of rational, intellectual approaches, Mm -hmm. very cognitive behavioral approaches as to how Mm -hmm. we can become a better person. And but it's all ego-based. It's like if I can learn something intellectually, if I can gain an insight into something, then I will get better. And one of the common challenges for me nowadays as a therapist, and this is really only since COVID, more and more I have to work with my clients against 
the idea that if I just take this course and listen to that podcast and this, you know, whatever it is, all these things that are available, that then I will know how to be better. But they don't get better. In fact, they get more neurotic mm-hmm. because they think they know mm-hmm. what their problem is. And so how come they aren't getting better? I only have to, you know, eat properly. I have to get my sleep. I have to think positively and then I will transform. But that's not how it works. And so cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy or related therapies are limited in their function as opposed to transformational or sort of imaginal therapies or Jungian type approaches. Because insight cannot transform the personality. Insight Mm -hmm. cannot transform the personality. The role of the ego is to gain information to help turn us inward so we can acknowledge and work with the emergence of unconscious material. So for example, I have my question about before my turtle dream, what should I do? What direction should I take in my life? Now I could have taken a very five-year plan, make a list, pros and cons, but my psyche interrupted and said, no, we're taking you right down to the bottom of the ocean. We're going to show you these blood and beauty mysteries. And this is where you need to be. It wasn't where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. But I had to respect that because I've known from much experience that you can't ignore the direction of the psyche without it creating illness or chaos in your life. Mm -hmm. So I had to put my ego to work to digest and to make sense of that message from psyche and begin to do the work. If I had approached that question only from a rational point of view, I probably would never have ended up doing what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the fact that I think most people, right? The rational is this like seemingly safe place. It's like, well, it's, it's logical and it's calculated and it's tangible, but how well is that working for us? Like, it's not working. People are are deeply struggling. And so it's like, I guess there's this like internalized belief for many people that like, if it's not working, it's because they haven't in, internal, they haven't intellectualized it hard enough. They haven't thought about it hard enough instead of being like, maybe the method I'm using is actually not the appropriate method to yield, you know, the result, which I think ultimately is like inner peace, really, as we, you know, we, we can, again, intellectualize all these things we think we want to achieve that will bring us happiness and health. But um, yeah, sometimes the tool we're using is maybe just not the right tool right. or we're not using it properly. Like the, it's not that the hammer doesn't have use, but it's using it appropriately when the hammer needs to be used and not using it for everything all the time. Well, one of the things that I witness is when people try to approach their problems from a very rational point of view, they become more and more frustrated because when they don't have success, they're trying to reach a sort of perfection and they don't reach that perfection. And then they feel kind of more and more badly about themselves. And then they're a failure. It's like I... I've had five diet coaches tell me how I should lose weight. Why am I so whatever? They will judge themselves harshly. Like, why am I so stupid? Why don't I have discipline? Blah, blah, blah. And you can look Mm -hmm. anywhere on the internet, anywhere in social media where there's all these, you just do this and you'll get the result. But what it does is it sets people up for sort of a a forced perfection. And it's not possible. Mm -hmm. And then they feel worse. So it's more important to get into relationship to what, for example, the weight is or what what it is that we want to change about our life or our job or our partnership. Get into relationship to all the bits and pieces rather than the result. So the role Mm -hmm. of the ego is not to accumulate data to use against us. The role of the ego is to conduct transformation of the personality by helping us appreciate what comes from within, what emerges from the unconscious. 
And then we live mm. it through experience. It becomes embodied through experience. We cannot, it cannot get into the bone of us by listening to a podcast. Now, how do we even know that what we're working on has, has any result? So we know that the changes in our psyche have occurred and that they are embodied because of the dreams and synchronicities that emerge. So in our dreams, we're no longer, for example, being chased by wild animals, but we're maybe friends with the wild animals or laying down with them in some way that there's a harmony or a balance. We're not dreaming about robbers or rapists anymore, but that our relationship to others is co-creative or constructive. Uh, we're not dreaming about the destruction of things, but we're dreaming about the birth of children. How does it look in the waking experience? In the waking experience, it looks like more peace, more ease. Mm -hmm. We're not fighting with everybody and everything. Less defense. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So understanding things intellectually, understanding processes is important, but only to the point that it serves us to not kind of beat ourselves up for not getting it all perfect. Mm -hmm. I remember there's one very have... famous person on, on the world stage right now who had made some comment about, you just have to do three things, just three things. You just at night before you go to bed, even just one thing, just say one thing that you've got to fix about yourself before you go to bed. I, I, I nearly fainted from horror at that. What a terrible way to go to sleep focusing on the one thing about you that has to be changed. Like when all day long mm -hmm. we're reminded about all the ways in which we're not good enough. What if we go mm -hmm. to bed with five things we're grateful for, three things mm -hmm. that we care and love about ourselves? What if we go to sleep with an openness to see what our dreams might have to say? Yeah, the hyper-focusing on what has to change seems to also miss this, I mean, I want to call it a reality. I'm, I'm more mindful than ever of my language. You know, I, I, I notice when I say something, I'm like, it's not exactly true. But anyways, my reality that when we do anything, it, there's a reason, right? There's a reason for why we do everything. And so much of the culture is rooted in uh, willpower to change. And if mm -hmm. you don't do it, it's because you don't have the willpower. You didn't try hard enough. And, you know, back to this dance with perfectionism, instead of like, yeah, curiosity about what might be happening, you know, beneath the hood that my body is intelligently choosing to behave, speak, think, do these things out of necessity, survival, protection, um, and like you said, when you engage with curiosity and compassion for the self, right? Maybe I'm grateful for even the thing I need to change because somehow my body intelligently is showing up this way in a way that has helped me survive. And entering in a, a loving relationship with our behaviors, because like since like when in the the history of humanity has engaging with something from a place of hate ever inspired change that is sustainable and uh, like consensual. Well, it, it can have results, but it's temporary because eventually the heart and the soul wants to be heard. Um, 
And I often think about like the idea of I'm going to focus on what needs to change makes mm -hmm. the kind of a, a subtle assumption that I know what that change should be or where the change should go. Yeah. But I, I'm primarily an unconscious being. How can I possibly mm -hmm. know? So really, our growth process, are you there, Camille? Did I lose you? Yeah, can you, can you hear you me? Go. Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> so it's more helpful if we want to grow psycho-spiritually is that we really kind of have a mixture of attentiveness and contemplation regarding what's really real in the now and not saying what has to change or what has to be done, but just saying what is real. You know, let's use the, um, I want to maybe, I don't know, do something like the artist's way and I want to get my right brain and left brain balance. And we might have a lot of resistance to mm -hmm. that to, because to go to that balance means I might have to experience some feelings. So rather than saying I have to work mm -hmm. through that, the great book, by the way, you know, the, the artist's way, but if, if I'm forcing myself into it, then I'm assuming that I need to do something that may or may not be real for me, that may or may not respect my resistance. But if I'm not able to follow all the directions, I'm finding there's some resistance or I, I forget or I get confused, then that's what I pay attention to. I, I have a resistance. Mm. I have a confusion. Well, who is confused? Who is resisting? Well, maybe the person that's confused is the, is the child self that was always told they weren't smart enough or they mm -hmm. should be, they should focus on being a mathematician instead of a musician or whatever. It, it, so it's like, well, what's really real? Not that I have to get through the exercises that is going to grow me, but I say, noticing what I notice, contemplating it, and trying to understand all of the dynamics are there. And then being patient, because mm -hmm. we can't force the psyche to yield up what we need to know. It deals it out in a way that protects us from going mm -hmm. mad. We don't need to go mad. Do you want me to share an example that happened this morning with a, that basically I went into defense and I paused and I gave my yeah. psyche an opportunity to com communicate. And, you know, before I, I share the example, I'll also say that the partnership I'm in has created a safe environment to lean in. Um, this is not something that I historically have done, especially in partnership. Um, it's something I've practiced with you a lot, sharing the inner dialogue, but more than ever, noticing that defense in myself. And River and I both do this. You know, we both get triggered. We both have our moments where we go into that defense. And we have communicated with one another as a practice that when it happens, we take space and we give the other person opportunity and each other because it's usually both at the same time for you know one reason or another if there's a that defense it's usually both present in both very rarely is it like one person just you know like like the bull in the china shop anyways this morning there's a bit of context but I'll try and just keep it brief um basically i i was interviewed recently i did a podcast with a friend before leaving austin and one of the clips went very viral. It's gotten tons of views, thousands of likes, you know, lots of views. And he, River and I were just talking about how, because we don't have any of the statistics, we're like, we wonder why this one clip, you know, has so many, so much engagement. And my theory about it was that people are probably sharing it on their story, you know, so like it's, it's reaching the audience kind of exponentially because people are sharing it. And very rationally and accurately, River said, we don't know that for sure because you can, there's, you get a bit of information, but it's a lot of speculation. And so he kept going back to, well, you know, it could have gone on the explore page. Like he gave a bunch of different examples and I went into defense. <laughs> I, you know, not anything major, but you know, like people know it's, it's always, it's felt palpably in the room, you know, like someone goes into defense, even if we don't address it. And if we try and sweep it under the rug, it's there, right? And 
so I was in defense and he said, is everything okay? Like I, he wasn't sure what he said that activated me. And I was like, well, anyways, we had a little bit of a back and forth. And then I was like, you know what? It's fine. And then I went inwards and I was like, I am in defense and I can very easily in this moment, because it was no big blow up. There was no big disagreement, but I could feel it in myself. Like I had been, something had been poked at and I know that when defense is present, usually a wound was poked at, right? Something I'm thinking or believing about the situation that is or isn't real. You know, it's as real as anything is or nothing is, I guess. Um, so I just got quiet and I, and invited my psyche to let me know why I felt the need to protect something. And what I realized very quickly, and you know, it's, it's quite beautiful as a practice when you're in a place where you know within yourself, I guess, firstly, that I welcome this information and the same reason why I said yes to this podcast and also in the dynamic of us. So firstly, what came up in me was I've associated the idea that people saw the clip that, you know, that I spoke in and shared it willingly suggests that like there is worth in the clip, right? People heard, read it, listened to it, and they were like, this is great. And they shared it. His honest feedback that we actually don't know if that was the case or if it went on the explore page, which is much more random. It's an algorithm. I'd associated his suggestion with people did not consciously watch my masterful, you know, whatever. And it was just random. It was more random than, you know, people actively choosing to share. And so I'm, you know, making a smoothie before our call. And I noticed, I'm like, oh, that's why. Because by him saying it could have been the explore page, it was suggesting that there was less conscious appreciation and sharing of, you know, what I said, which of course it's, it's hilarious. Like, you know, it, it just was, I took it personally. And I, and mm -hmm. so I was in that place of, first of all, being safe enough within myself to hear that. And then also th then the invitation is I can share this with him. You know, like this is an opportunity to communicate with him that my defense response was not personal. It was not random, right? Like there's something almost scary about that if like people can become so dysregulated out of nowhere for no reason. So, and of course the ego, that that protection mechanism that caused me to react that way in the first place doesn't get super excited about sharing that. Like I had associated what you said about me not being, you know, the, the bee's knees or whatever. And yet doing that and the repair that comes from that and the connection that comes from that and like the truth, it like beams in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it just feels mm -hmm. so good to come full circle and connect with someone and share very, you know, humblingly, is that a word? Mm -hmm. With humility that like what he poked at unknowingly was a wound. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting that you use the word humble, but it's a very important state of being. Because when we are humble, then we are able to receive all things. Mm. If we're full of pride, then we're full of some sort of ego stance that says we think this, we do that, we're associated with this. And there's no room for something that is more than what we think we are. So the ego Accurate. gets challenged. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. well, yeah, both your very, you are the bee's knees and lots of things. And also, you don't know. And, and the so, ego doesn't exactly. want that. So just like you said, my, the initial reason for defending myself was this desire for my partner to see me as being great. And the irony is that in defending that inauthentically, because it has to come like, so in, in coming back to my body, witnessing the defense, realizing why I did that and communicating it with him, I found actual connection and love. The thing I wanted so badly by defending the idea that I had projected onto his statement by actually dismantling the defense. And of course, you know, like you said at the beginning, in an appropriate context, like sometimes these defenses 
actually maybe you could speak to that but like there is a degree of like the ego protecting us from unsafe dynamics unsafe situations there's a place for not communicating everything with anyone all the time but in this instance coming home yeah to my body and finding that space to hear and communicate it actually brought the thing that I wanted that I couldn't have intellectualized Yeah, I think there's two things that we do have to have a sense that the person that we're with and the circumstances are safe and that we can trust our surrender there. And also, we sometimes have to make a conscious decision to go there, even if it might be a little bit treacherous. And usually Mm -hmm. the treachery is that there might be some epistemology of our ego that will get destroyed, not so much our soul. So part of the finesse is determining, are we protecting our soul or are we protecting Mm. our epistemologies that might actually need some questioning, might actually need some humbling. And because we live in a world that's so rational, so ego-driven and ego-based, it's hard to learn that finesse of, is you know, would my soul be injured or is this just going to be my pride that will be injured? Mm. Now, well, how do you if, recommend we might go about? Well, if our, if our soul has been injured, it will show up in our dreams as some sort of violence. Mm. If our ego has been injured, yeah. we'll probably have a tantrum, a pout, we'll want to punish somebody, we'll want to blame somebody. But if it's our soul, mm-hmm. it, it will come up very real in the dreams. Mm-hmm. Now, so... I have great respect for knowledge about the psyche and about knowing ourselves. It's a very important thing. But I do think more and more we err too much on just insight is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think insight can be kind of, it's closer to a poem than a concept. Mm-hmm. I don't know I'm saying this as a poet, but it's, it's like it comes in this sort of very fluid whole way that you can not unpack exactly rationally. But Mm -hmm. an insight is just that. It's an insight. It's a poem. But the embodiment of that insight comes when it starts to live in our being, in our flesh. Mm -hmm. Like it lives in our feeling, in our imagination, in our experience. The aha that comes with an insight continually repeats itself, like in kind of in waves and over and over again. But if we intellectualize, it hinders the poetic, it hinders the feeling, and it hinders the imagination. So if we think, aha, I know what it is, I know where we should go or what it should be, we're already Mm -hmm. working against the embodiment of that because we want to take control of that insight that arises partly from our knowing, but partly from within. Which takes us back to this perfectionism, right? It's like it's you deadly. still it's there's deadly. still does yeah, it's still this desire to to like grab the insight and finally I'll be perfect because finally I've got this insight. Yeah. Yeah. And I you know, I remember when I first understood that I had a terrible spiritual pride. Because I worked really, really hard for a very long time, many hours of psychotherapy in a Jungian-based, imaginal-based way. And I thought I was pretty evolved. And then some events, it's a long story, so I'm not going to go into that, but some events caused me to fall from pride. And I realized Mm -hmm. that the pride of having all sorts of spiritual, um, psycho-spiritual information and knowledge about myself and the world did not serve me and actually made me probably a little bit insufferable. And that really, a lot of what sort of passes for self-help or growth right now is just kind of an aggrandizement of the psycho-spiritual process so we can be better than others. And I remember speaking with Mm -hmm. a client a few days ago who is visiting one of her parents and was had many judgments about how puny their life was because they haven't done all the work that they are doing, etc. And and then mm-hmm. it became, we had a long discussion about it's not 
no matter how much work I've done towards insights, embodiments, working psycho-spiritually, that, that's my path. It's not anyone right. else's. And that if we judge somebody's life as puny, it, it's, we're guilty of spiritual pride, and we actually become puny. And like you right. want your How partner I... to love you, right? And but he—it's hard to love you if you're full of defensive pride. You become more mm-hmm. difficult to love. But if you can say, oh, "I was wrong. I don't know. Maybe you're right. I'm not sure. Let's contemplate this." It makes everybody actually more lovable. Yeah, there's this this part of I guess probably for most people, I think it may be hard to bypass the the desire to, you know, call it work on yourself, right? Interact with the the model of evolving. And we think that it will make us better instead of focusing. I think what's more helpful for, for me is on wholeness. And the more in touch I become with my wholeness, the more equal I become to everyone else because I get in touch with all parts of myself that I witness in everyone else. And so if there is engaging in self-development work from a place of becoming better, you're really becoming more dissociated from your wholeness, which ends up, like you said, you know, paradoxically being the opposite of what you're trying to achieve, which, you know, fundamentally going back to that inner peace is if there's more and more separation between you and the world as you work on yourself, it becomes very murky waters. It's kind of like a fun house where you actually can't see anymore that the thing you think is helping you is actually your greatest um, thing to overcome. Well, if you're working on yourself so you can be better than others or commodify your experience, I would say you're on the wrong track. If Mm -hmm. you're working on yourself so that you can become a more ethical person, someone who is going to be, no matter how small their interaction with others in the world is, that that interaction with you would serve others in a positive way, even Mm -hmm. if they don't know what you're doing. Just a simple kindness. That's the purpose of this work. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, there's some, some quotes of Carl Jung, and I might not get it perfectly right, but he Someone asked him, well, is there evil? And basically he said, you know, in his mind, evil was the lack of consciousness of one's shadow. Mm-hmm. And so if we're working on ourselves so we can become more perfect than others, then we still have to address our shadow of pride. And we will yeah. perpetuate evil. You've shared this with me, and I think even on a previous podcast episode, taking that to the micro because I think it's I think it's very easy. I can see how easy it would be for someone to say, well, no, I don't, I don't do it to be better than others. But when you take it internally, if you're doing it to be better than yourself, and the the analogy that you've brought up in the past is the the idea of like having a dinner table, right? With every part of yourself being invited in and getting an intimate relationship with every part of your psyche of yourself. And so if you're quest for self-development is rooted in kicking out all the, the, the people who've come to dinner that are loud or, you know, misbehaved or eat with their hands. If that's, you know, what the goal is, then it is this being becoming better than other people. If the goal is to invite everyone and anyone who comes knocking at the door of your psyche's dinner table and saying, come on in, you know, we've got one more seat. Well, let's get to know you. You've got our place. You're, you know, you're invited, and that, yeah, I find helpful as a, as an analogy, as a human being. That actually comes from a, a very deep contemplation on Leonard Cohen's songs, "The Guest." So you might want to put mm-hmm. a link for your listeners because it's a profound image of welcoming everyone in, all the guests mm-hmm. in. The kind of any and there's a sort of a refrain in which it says, "No one knows where the night is going, no one knows how the wine is flowing," and then there's an invitation to love. And so, yeah, if you can let all the guests that are yourself, all the aspects of yourself, despised, honored, revered, you don't even know all the 
judgments you might have, if they can come in to the party, if they can come in and spend the night, what do you know about yourself and how can we be informed? And in my work with people, when they begin to invite to their own dinner table the despised aspects of themselves, those so-called despised aspects actually come with gifts. And though they mm -hmm. might be a bit odiferous and, you know, they have flies flying around them and they're not very pleasant and maybe they have <laughs> bad language, but they bring a gift of awareness or consciousness that is healing. And there's a number mm -hmm. in fairy tales. There's always, there's many, many fairy tales. There's the despicable person or the undigestible thing or the unthinkable thing that is often the turning point of the hero's or the heroine's journey. Mm. And, and the despicable is not a rational process. It comes uninvited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and fundamentally is rooted in is shattering the idea that anyone is broken or malfunctioning or, yeah, like damaged beyond repair. It's this, you know, I think a lot of people identify with their problems as like some well, I guess it's victimhood, right? It's like something is happening in me that is beyond me and beyond my control and and was life's curse instead of being like, let me get to know the reason why, maybe not even the reason, let me get to know this part of myself and, you know, curiously and um, with compassion, get to know maybe yeah, why this person is coming knocking at my door and not dismissing, yeah, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Like there's a there's a reason mm -hmm. for it all. And that to me is, is true power because it's not relegating growth to eradicating something that is not mine. Like this is not mine, you know, this behavior, even the idea like this is a learned behavior that I need to get rid of because it was passed down. My, you know, my grandma did this instead of like, well, I, my body intelligently is showing up this way and let me engage with it with reverence instead of like, yeah, shame. Well, and sometimes people's choices of what they do in their life or hobbies or activities are the thing that leads them to the growth and they're not necessarily conscious about it, but they pursue it. Mm. For example, gardening. They have an imagination of making a beautiful rose bed. And they stay with it, and it almost becomes like a compulsion or, a, 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 you know, so something that's irresistible in them. And they do that for years and years. And then slowly, many, many insights and understandings about themselves and the world happen through what it takes to grow a rose garden and have the roses survive all sorts of things, you know, climate, insects, etc. So... You know, we think that people are working on themselves if they're listening to podcasts or reading books or get talking about it. But sometimes it's very simple. They take a half an hour and they knit or they're in the garden mm -hmm. or they go along, you know, for a walk in the woods and they practice songs they love by whistling them. So we don't know what will heal. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the arrogance of the intellectual mind is it thinks that all healing and knowing must come through the intellect. But it doesn't mm -hmm. have to. It can come through the simple doing of, I don't know, you know, like the, the joy that comes from a rocking a baby in your arms or learning a new dance step. Who knows what it is? But it, I think it's really important to not get too tied up into it has to be knowing. Mm, that makes so much sense. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a few people uh, I know in my family, my grandmother being one of them, like she's never formally worked on herself a day in her life. <laughs> and, you know, in that way of like the podcast and the courses and all that stuff. And she was very difficult for I mean, my mom and her brothers growing up. Like there was a lot of defense a lot and she softened a lot in her in her the last couple of years in her older years not from any yeah learning to embody the feminine course or reading you know Marion Woodman she's done it in her own way that's it's beautiful because it speaks to allowing people to have their process even if it doesn't look like yours and in fact 
you know, we, we know trying to force a rose to open, to blossom before it's ready just kills the rose. And so we will often project our version of what's been helpful to us onto other people when, like we've touched on, you know, previously in this podcast, has your work really worked if your solution to helping other people is to force, you know, anything down their throat? Yeah. Yeah. I think I would just sum up really the goal of psycho-spiritual transformation is wisdom, not insight. And wisdom is Mm. developed slowly through our ability to discern the qualities and coherence existing among and between people, places, and things in relationship to each other. So wisdom is founded Mm -hmm. on experiential knowledge and enlightenment. And so that it it has its own way of occurring in our life. Mm. That's all I have to say today, Camille. Mm. I'm really honored that you were willing to to go here today. Mm. That's um, it's yeah, it takes courage. You know, I've been noticing my body language throughout our call, and I keep trying to open. Like I'm sitting on the ground. And I keep trying to like, I have my legs splayed and my, and my hands open. And just as we're finishing, I have my legs crossed and my arms like, like tucked in between my thighs. <laughs> it's, it's like consciously, this is great. I love it. But it's, it's definitely like the, the depths that this topic goes is uncomfortable for the psyche. And it's, it's important work, but it's hilarious. And I kept like consciously unwinding. It's okay, body, we're safe. But it kept kind of like just <laughs> twisting yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Well, nothing's uncomfortable um, for the psyche, but much is uncomfortable for the ego. Unless mm, it's little ego yeah. self. Yeah. Yeah. Before before we go, I'd love to just ask you one more thing on the topic because and before I even say it, part of me doesn't love the question because what it suggests is this, well, something I'm exploring at the moment is, you know, there's a lot of language around like the universe doing things or even in theory as astrology, any like big overarching energy that could punish you know, if we don't show up properly, I'm not loving that as a concept. And I think it's really like it has tentacles in so many of the spiritual language. And so I'll acknowledge that before I ask my question. But I I find in my own life that when I really focus within and don't project my my defense i guess defense is a projection to right like it's it's i'm i got poked something got poked inside of me and then i go to war with the thing that poked me instead of being like whoa what what is that thing that was poked right so i go i look outwards instead of looking inwards and what i find is when i direct my gaze inwards my environment changes to the point where i almost wonder sometimes like is the external world like crafting itself to like, am I going towards the things and literally creating an external world that is my biggest fear that is attracting and poking at the things to show me myself. And I'm, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if that's, if that even makes sense, first of all, but if that's possible to engage with that in a healthy way, as opposed to this like patriarchal universe that's only gonna, you know, a- afford me inner peace if I do the work because the whole world is otherwise, you know, a bad place. Like, does that, yeah, does that make sense? It does, and that would have to be another topic for another time. But really, what you're talking about is, is that's what I love it, Camille. It's about the mechanism of projection and counter projection. So mm-hmm. most of what we and how we perceive the world is a projection of our intrapsychic landscape, and and that's huge. We need to understand what is a projection of our of our inner world and what is not, um, and that's a huge part about sorting this out. 
Um, as to some sort of punishing universe, well, that again is a projection. I remember once right. I was in my you know grad school, there was like a giant storm that was coming. And when one woman said, oh, Mother Nature is really angry at us. And I said, well, actually, Mother Nature doesn't really care because, mm -hmm. you know, we're not that important. We're just like part of the whole mechanism, no more important than the seeds of the dandelion floating on the wind. And she was a bit offended. I was a bit blunt about it. But that's a projection. It's like she has yeah. something that she feels guilty about, about how she's treated nature. And so now Mother Nature is angry. My response to the storm is, I love storms. They're like so interesting and exciting and electric. And I didn't think of it as punishment. But if I'm afraid, if I have guilt or shame, mm -hmm. then yeah, I will see all sorts of things as punishing. So projections, yes, projections and transformation to be continued to yeah be continued. it's funny i think what i was what i was asking is kind of like is is it a projection to think that the world orients itself around my wounds you know to like that will literally create the dynamic to poke at the wound and will can will all right an abrupt ending today Geraldine and I attempted to go into this final question a couple of times, but the software kept cutting out, and as her and I often do, we had a big laugh that life did not want us to continue onto the topic of projections too deeply today. Geraldine and I agreed we would revisit projections as an entire episode very soon, so stay tuned for that. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. That's it for today. Bye for now.